This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Come with me, please, to John's Gospel, chapter 11. John's Gospel, chapter 11. And at this point, I really only want to read one verse. And it's just two words. Shortest verse in the Bible, verse 35. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. The Apostle John uh, wrote this lovely gospel of his about 60 years after Christ's ministry on earth, when he went back to the Father. John, you remember, was the first disciple of Jesus, and now he's the last of the original 12 to be alive. James, his brother, is gone. Peter is gone. Bartholomew, Andrew, all of them are gone. Even the great apostle Paul, he too has run his race, he's finished his course, and he's gone on to be with the Lord. Tremendous changes have taken place since the church was birthed at Pentecost. And during those 60 years, the church had grown rapidly around the world. By this time, every major Roman city has got a Christian church. The gospel has gone over the then known world. But also in AD 70, Titus came in, destroyed Jerusalem, burned down the temple, left not one stone upon another, just as Jesus had predicted what happened. Thousands in Jerusalem were slain. Tens of thousands were taken off into captivity. It is believed that the Colosseum in Rome was built by some 50,000 slaves. Most of them would be Jewish slaves. And so there's no more temple, they have no more capital, there's no more feast days, no more sacrifices to be made, no priesthood, and the the burning candle of Judaism looks like it's about to be completely snuffed out. The church is in its third generation, and the church is absolutely riddled with false doctrines and false teachers. These were the ones that Peter and Paul and Jude and John all talked about and wrote about what happened. Paul says, when I go away, he says, grievous wolves shall enter in, not sparing the flock. And that's what was happening. And so, now some six decades later, the Holy Spirit is prompting John to write this final gospel. The New Testament is almost complete. There's just John's Gospel, his three short epistles, and of course the majestic book of Revelation. And then the full canon of Scripture is completed and is complete to this very day. Now John's Gospel is very different than the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I've told you before, they're called the Synoptic Gospels. N-S-Y-N means together. 
and optic means see. So when you see them together, when you read them, you find that there's many similarities in style and in substance, even though they're written to different people. But John's gospel, when you come to it, is entirely different. Very different in style, very different in substance. And the Holy Spirit is prompting John, inspiring him to put pen to papyrus, as it were, and to write down this beautiful gospel. And John, commentators say, had a very limited vocabulary, some only 600 words. He wasn't like the learner Dr. Luke. He didn't have the forensic mind uh, of the Apostle Paul. He wasn't eloquent like the prophet Isaiah. He was a common fisherman. But even though he wrote very simply, yet what he wrote was very, very profound indeed. In fact, probably because it's simple to read, that's usually why new believers, we encourage them to read the Gospel of John first, among other reasons. And so he begins to write this wonderful gospel, and he's recalling it. Remember now, he's an old man now, but the Holy Spirit is helping him to recall the events that he saw and he heard and he was witness to when Jesus was alive on the earth. And he remembered Jesus' teachings, and he remembered his miracles, and he was there and saw all of them. And he was there in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was agonizing in prayer. And he was there at the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was transfigured before them. And so he was the, of the inner, inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John. So he was first-hand witness to everything Jesus said and done. So who better to write a gospel? But John was going to write it in such a way that, that he would cover some areas of teaching and, and things that happened in Jesus that the others didn't cover. There are some uh, overlaps, but generally it's very, very different in style and in content. And he's thinking, I, I can imagine him in his mind's eye thinking about the miracles that he witnessed, about the lame walking and the blind seeing and the dumb speaking. And then he would think about the dead being raised. And remember, he was there at the house of Jairus when Jesus came back and, and those mourners said to Jairus, don't trouble the master any further. Your daughter's dead. And Jesus and John and a few went into that room. And there's that little girl lying dead on the bed. And he remembers and he's seeing in his mind's eye how Jesus spoke to that little one and says, Talithi kumai, little maid, I say unto you, arise. And she arose. And John saw that with his own eyes. He was there literally seeing that wonderful miracle and resurrection happening. And he was there whenever Jesus and the disciples were walking into the city of Nain. And he remembers how that, that poor widow woman was coming out burying her only son and how Jesus had compassion on her. And he stopped the funeral procession and he put his hand up and he touched the open coffin and he says, young man, I say unto you, arise. And he arose and spoke. And John saw that. He was there. And it was alive to him at this moment. And he was there and could see in his mind's eye as he was looking back. He was there whenever Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. 
And I can imagine him thinking, sitting back with his eyes closed, thinking about that moment that day and how when Jesus came to the home of of Mary and Martha and Lazarus and, and how Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Mary said the same, Lord, if you just had been here, you're only down the road. If you had came when we ask you, I'm paraphrasing, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And he remembers how Jesus says, well, where have you laid him? Where have you laid him? And how they rolled away that stone from the mouth of the, the tomb. And Jesus stood there and he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus, still bound by the grave clothes, shuffled his way out into the daylight. What a moment that must have been for John to experience. Can you imagine what that must have been like? When Jesus said, roll away the stone, if we had been standing there thinking, what's going to happen? <laughs> I mean, the, the, you'd have had goosebumps. The hair would have stood in the back of your neck. And John's remembering this. <coughs> But then, as he recalls looking into the face of Jesus, he saw something he had never, ever seen before. He saw Jesus weeping. He saw Jesus weeping. Tears flowing down his dusty face onto his beard. And when John says Jesus wept, the word he uses for wept, It's the only time it's used. And it wasn't like the the mourners, the professional mourners who came to funerals, who were hired to wail and to cry loud. It wasn't even like Mary and Martha's wailings. No, it wasn't showy or shouty. But he was sobbing deep, tears his shoulders probably was moving and John looked into his eyes and he saw the son of God God in human flesh literally crying tears and he was deeply moved and so John is now going to write. What is he going to say? What words can he use? How can he describe the emotion of that moment? Looking back, it's as if it just happened. It's real. After 60 years, it's burning in his brain. But what's he going to say? And in his understated way, he simply writes, Jesus wept. You know, I think whenever you come to scripture like that, we should be taking our shoes off. This is holy ground. John had never seen Jesus weeping before. And he wept. And when John wrote, Jesus wept, 
if that had been the psalm as David, I'm sure he'd have put Selah after it. Think about that. And I'm sure when John wrote, Jesus wept, it's as if John is saying, meditate on that. Make of that what you will. Try to understand that if you can't. And we can't really, can we? I'm sharing in something today that neither I or anybody else could plumb the depths of. That God incarnate, that God in human flesh would weep and cry tears. So what does this tell us about Jesus? What does this reveal to us about the Son of God? Here are my conclusions. First of all, we have a Savior that is touched with the feelings of our infirmities, the Scripture says. In that moment, he felt what they felt. Let me say, in that moment, he felt more than what they felt. Mary and Martha were true friends in Lazarus. And they were weeping, and as Romans 12, 15 says, rejoice with those who do rejoice and weep with those who weep. And Jesus was not immune to the hurt and to the pain that this family was going through. He often visited their home he, he loved to go to the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Uh, Martha would cook him such beautiful meals. Mary would sit at his feet and pay great rapt attention. He felt comfortable around Lazarus in this family circle. Wherever he would go, he would always look to that home as a place where he could just relax and just be free from the demands of life and just sit there in that home as if it was his own home. Jesus loved all men. Of course he did. But in his humanity, he forged friendships. Even among the 70, he chose 12, and among the 12, he chose three that were closest to him. And so these were people that brought a smile to his face and he was relaxed and there was such a warm bond of friendship that had resulted in many, many visits. But now, death had invaded this household. And Jesus could feel the effects. You know, we, we, we talk a lot about death and dying. And often it's all academic until it happens to somebody that's really, really close to you. Then you really feel it. Then it's more than just sympathy. It's empathy. You enter into the feelings. I, I often say to families that are bereaved that grief is, is normal. And the reason why I say that is because 
particularly in some sections of the church in America, that they're putting out that, that grief is not normal, that you shouldn't grieve. What planet does these people live on? What Bible do they read? Grief is normal. Even the psalmist David in Psalm 56 and 8 says, put my tears into your bottle, are they not in your book? In, in those days, if somebody was crying, somebody would get a little clay bottle and put it up to their eyes where their tears could go in as a memorial of their grief and their hurt and their pain. And so Jesus is entering into the feelings of this family whom he loves dearly, that are great companions. Thank God in Revelation 21 and 4, it says that God promises that one day there'll be no more tears, Hallelujah. no more sorrow, no more crying, for the former things have passed away. But while we're on this earth, things happen. Aren't you glad for a Savior that is touched with the feelings of your infirmities? The Greeks and the Romans had their gods that were capricious, that had no feeling towards them, that did not sympathize or empathize. But our God does. Hallelujah. Our God feels our hurt and our pain and what we go through. Jesus, of course, in his divinity, knew full well that he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. But it didn't stop him crying. It didn't stop him feeling what they felt. Did you ever consider for a moment that perhaps Jesus probably, perhaps a part of those tears maybe was for Lazarus? Knowing that even though he was going to bring him back from the dead, but one day he would have to go through that process all over again, either through age or through illness, that he would die again. We have a Savior that's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He wept because of what sin had done to his creation. Not that he was unaware of it before, because in the 33 years of his life, he saw it firsthand every day. He saw the devastating effects of sin all around him. Later on, in Luke 19, at his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, he wept again. Only this time a different word is used. He cried aloud. He wept over Jerusalem when he saw what was going to happen to it. When he looked down the corridor of time prophetically and saw the devastation that was going to happen to his people. And he cried aloud that day. Remember that after the death of John the Baptist, Jesus just wanted to get away from the cross. See, in his humanity, he, he felt things. And when John the Baptist 
was beheaded. He, he just wanted just to get away, to, to process all this. Sometimes you and I, when we're going through stuff, sometimes we just don't even want to even be around anybody for a little while, for a day or an hour, because we want to process this. Jesus is no different in his humanity. And so he, he took his disciples into a desert place for a while. But then the people found out where he was and they came in their hordes and he had compassion on them. In spite of what he was feeling and his hurt, he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. But never... Never did he feel so keenly the effects of sin in that day at the tomb of his dear friend Lazarus. A few years ago, I was at a funeral. By the way, I've been at 11 funerals this year already, and this is only July. A few years ago, I was at a funeral, and a pastor that was taking it talked to me afterwards. I know him very well. He was a friend. And he said, David, I have taken dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of funerals. And he had. But he says, my wife is dying today. And the doctors told me there's only days left. And he says, when I think of all the funerals I've taken, of all the families I have gone through grief with, but he says, nothing, nothing, nothing is like this that I'm facing today. Because this is my wife. This is my home. This is the mother of my children. And she did die a few days later. And he was devastated. And I knew her well because it was my cousin. She was a godly, godly woman too. And so, make no mistake, that sin in Eden brought awful devastation to this world. In one stroke, innocence was gone, beauty was marred, benefits and advantages were ravaged by death and disease and greatly diminished. And so Jesus wept when he saw what sin had done to his creation. To those it was made in God's image. Now sin has marred and broken. Jesus wept. Verse 36, then the Jews said, see how he loved him. They saw the genuineness of his tears. And the only conclusion they came to was he really, really loved this man. Verse 33 and 38, we didn't read that, but had we read that, it says, Jesus groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And groaned here means deeply agitated. Deeply, deeply agitated. And troubled here means that he was, 
he trembled with indignation and grief. John was watching this. He never forgot it. Not just the tears, but the trembling. Seeing Jesus visibly move, touched him. No doubt they're wailing. Particularly the professional wailers, no doubt that annoyed him and upset him. And also, verse 37 some of them says, could not this man, kind of a derogatory term, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Huh. It wasn't, wasn't enough that they saw him touched and moved and weeping and sobbing, but they had to add insult to that. And here's the old theological chestnut that we still hear to this day by those who don't want to believe in God. Well, if God was a loving God, surely he wouldn't allow disease and death and dying and pain and agony. And if he is a God of love and he allows that, it's because he has no power to stop it. And all the variations of that. I still get that to this day. But how wrong were they? They had no understanding of the Son of God whatsoever. No understanding at all. And why even God allowed this? Even those two sisters, if you had been here, can't understand why you didn't come. If only you had come. Huh. And perhaps it was that sarcasm and that wailing and the facts of sin, all of that together caused the Son of God to stand there weeping at that time. However, Jesus was about to demonstrate to all at the tomb that day and to everyone who stands at the grave of a saved loved one that he is the resurrection and the life. That he has the power to raise men from the dead. And he will raise every man and every woman from the dead. Some to life everlasting and some unto eternal condemnation. But he will raise everyone from the dead. I am the resurrection and the life, he says. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Ah, that's, that's our Savior, isn't it? Verse 35, Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Some of them says, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it, and Jesus says, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. Corruption had set in. 
And Jesus said to her, did not I say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Did I just not tell you that? But in her pain and in her grief and in her hurt and in her loss, she wasn't listening. She didn't get it. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. He had already done his praying four days ago. He already got the mind of the Father on this. And I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Some scholars say the, the true grammatical phrase of that is, Lazarus, out here. <laughs> Wouldn't you like to be there that day? <laughs> huh. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes. And his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. Now you would think, wouldn't you, that every person standing there watching, listening, seeing that with their own two eyes, you would think they'd be changed forever. Somewhere. Some of the Jews believed on him because of that. But you know what some others did if you read on? They went to the priests, the rulers, and said what happened. And they consented together to put Jesus to death. And not only to put Jesus to death, but Lazarus also. <laughs> Can you imagine that? See, sometimes we think, well, a miracle will change everything. Not always. Not all people. Some's hearts were softened, made tender and believing. Some hearts were hardened. And so it says he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. We're almost finished. In John 5... Verse 24, most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Glory to God. What an encouragement 
to those loved ones that you have put their earthly remains into the cold sod of this earth, that one day that body will rise again. Just like Lazarus heard the voice of Jesus saying, come forth. One day, everyone will hear that voice. Do not marvel for this, at this hour, uh, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. And come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. What a Savior. What a mighty Lord we serve who has the power of life and death. Glory, hallelujah. He can just speak a word and the dead will rise again. And so this is our Savior. This is the one whom we follow and love and serve. This is the one who's touched with the feelings of our weaknesses and infirmities. This is the one who knows everything we go through. It's wonderful to read of his power in the Gospels. It's wonderful to think he's the resurrection and the life. But what is wonderful also is to know that he cares deeply about me and you and every single thing we face in life. He knows about it and he's with us in it and through it. And he's touched with our feelings. Glory to God. He's not a God who's aloof and afar off, who doesn't care as much as this world would try to tell us that or the devil would try to tell us that. But we know different He says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I'll be with you even unto the end. That's the Jesus who's our Savior today. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his gospel that changed us, that saved us, that made us new creatures, that gave us a new life and a new purpose for living, that is giving us a hope and a future in this life. And we thank you, Lord God, that your son came to this earth, lived in this earth, knows what it's like to be here, and wept tears upon this earth. We thank that he cares for us. So we can say, as Peter says, casting all our care upon him, for he cares for us. So, Father, today we thank you for your son. We thank you for giving him to us and for us. And we bless you for that. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your supreme sacrifice on Calvary, that you made a way possible for us to come into the presence of your Father. And we thank you for leaving your Holy Spirit 
to fill our lives because we are the temple of the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. And so we bless you today. We give you thanks for who you are and for all that you've done. And Lord, everything we face in this life, you know about it. You're with us in it. You never leave us during it. You're always present. And we give you thanks for this. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.